Hi, I'm Peter Marks. Welcome to Rhythm Nation, a podcast that explores the intersection of activism and music. My hope is that with each episode, you'll come away with a greater appreciation for the political context of music and be inspired to make activism a larger part of your life. Today, we've got a very special guest. We've got Bill Brewster, who is a producer, promoter, and DJ, who's one of the original residents of London's renowned Fabric Club. He's also one of the foremost historians on DJs and dance music and has written multiple books on the subject. For me, reading his seminal book, Last Night at DJ Saved My Life, was probably the biggest turning point in how I viewed music as it provided historical context on dance music. And in many ways, that was a turning point that led me to work in progressive politics. So I'm really excited to have Bill on the show. Bill, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. It's been a while since we connected. You came out and played for my party, Occasion Vibration, in Portland a couple of years ago. It was such a pleasure having you, and I'm, I'm grateful to have an excuse to connect with you for this podcast. So thanks again for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's always good to talk to you. So... What came first for you, politics or music? Music, really. Um, I, I started buying 45s from the local store when I was about 10 um, and got progressively more interested into in music as, I, as my teens progressed, I guess. So, yeah, music was definitely my first love. I didn't really have um, any interest in politics at all as a teenager, even though my my, my father was a, a contradictory figure. He was a shop steward for a trade union who voted for the Tories. So, so he voted kind of right wing, but represented workers. So, uh, but I guess he kind of grew up in the fifties and sixties, where those kind of anomalies were were more common. Uh, but in ref- on reflection, for me personally, I, I kind of think that's really weird. How could you be a shop steward and vote conservative? Yeah, yeah, that is sort of a, a paradox. When did, when did the politics come in for you? What was what was the jumping off point for that? Okay, so I um, trained as a chef uh, when I left school, um, and I moved to London when I was seventeen. And um, a guy that I trained with in my local college uh, w- organised a trade union in uh, the hotel that he was working in, Claridge's, which is one of the big five star hotels in London. And the hotel I worked at, the Barclay, was owned by the same company. And um, that's when I started understanding about the disparities in wealth, um, about trade union organization, trade union recognition and things like that. So that was kind of my first entry point into politics. But actually, I have to say the thing that really drove my political interest when I was that age, 17, 18, was punk rock uh, because... I was um, going to see bands like the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers and uh, the Undertones and the Clash, but in particular bands like the Clash that, that were talking about political issues really caught my ear and, and that made me much more interested. And a lot of the writers mm-hmm. that were writing for music magazines were name-checking Gramsci and Trotsky and all of these people I'd never heard of. And so I started buying books about these political um, theorists and sociologists and people that were getting name-checked in music magazines. How did you go from music fan to like actually it being a major part of your life? What was that transition? Well, the, f- the first thing that I ever did uh, in music was... Um, 
I'd been working as a chef for about six six or seven years, and um, I'd been working abroad in Switzerland, and I was kind of a bit disillusioned with it already. And I moved back to my hometown of Grimsby, not really knowing what I wanted to do, just knowing that I didn't want to do what I'd been doing. Um, and my friends in Grimsby had been in punk bands. Um, and when I moved back, they approached me and said, do you want to, do you want to start a band? Uh, and that was my kind of first entry point into, into music really. So we all went to see a group called a certain ratio play in Leeds, which is about 70 miles away from where I lived. And, um, we were blown away by how amazing they were live and they had a new album out and we're all really into this album. And that was the starting point for us to kind of form our own band. So that was my first taste of being more closely involved in music in actually making music and that gave me a, a thirst that never really left me um so and, and we were semi-successful we got signed uh, to a label in london um we put out a couple of singles we got played on john peel and stuff like that so um, oh wow i didn't realize that that's awesome yeah yeah it, you know it was all in a in a very small way um you know but we we were kind of a big thing in our local town for a while but but certainly we weren't making ripples in many other places. But but that that gave me the thirst for it. And and from there I was in another band after that. And at the end of that band, um, I started to DJ really. I, and, and I only really, I didn't have ambitions to be a DJ. I started DJing because I was a record collector first and foremost. So people were people would ask me to come and play at their party because they knew I had a lot of records. That was literally the only qualification I had was I had a quite a good collection of records. That's and, an important one for a DJ to have that. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. But, but I would say kind of almost everything that I've done in, in music has really come from, from record collecting more than being, for example, a musician. I, and I was never really a competent musician. Um, so I, I, I relied on surrounding myself with people that were a lot more competent than me, which is what I do now. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so I, 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 the bug got me and it never really left me. So I, I, we started that band. Um, that gig we went to was in December 1981 and we formed the band kind of by the beginning of 1982, I suppose, so 38 years ago. So I've been at it for a long time now. So when you were in the band, were you was this in London or was this where were you located? The, the, band, that time? the band was based in Grimsby. It was it was all of my friends, um, all of my friends in Grimsby, plus a couple of guys that we discovered. We, we found a, a teenage prodigy who went to school. With my brother, a guy called Richard Pardy, who was a very very good um, saxophone flute player. Um, who's subsequently gone on to play for Amy Winehouse and um, uh, Matthew Herbert's big band and people like that. He's an absolutely really great guy and then a fantastic musician. He was obviously very, very talented. What drew you to London? Uh, punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, I, I saw the Sex Pistols um, and that was a really transformative moment for me because uh, – punk rock gave you an opening to be involved in music in a way that, um, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer or whoever didn't. Um, and, 
actually the thing that drew me to house music uh, later on was exactly the same thing. It felt to me like uh, black punk rock. Um, you look at a lot of the things that they were doing in Chicago and it was really similar to punk, you know, people that were fairly incompetent, weren't musicians, trying to make a racket with machines. And, and really it didn't seem that different to me from punk rock. And lots and lots of people in the UK from my kind of generation um, had, been, had, had lived through punk and could see the parallels. When did you first discover Chicago house music? On the John Peel show. Uh, John, John Peel's a pretty seminal radio presenter yep. in, sure. in the UK. Uh, he he was playing it I'm right from the, the – I remember, actually, the earliest record I can remember him playing that I was aware of was um, uh, Hey Rocky by Boris Badenough, which came out in 1985 or 86 on Trax Records. That was the first house record I ever heard. But at the time – I, I couldn't have told you that was a house record. I actually discovered it on a tape that I made. Of, of, I used to record his shows and make sort of uh, best best of John Peel kind of tapes for myself. And uh, many years later, I was listening through to them and I, and I found this Boris Badenoff track on there. I had no idea it was a house record when I heard it because I was listening to um, kind of electro records at the time and and a lot of the kind of drum machine-led hip-hop records that were coming out of that period. I'm talking about maybe more well-known acts like Run DMC and, and um, who else would have been there? Schoolie D was another big favourite of mine at the time. Um, so I, I, And also um, Mantronics. I was a huge fan of Mantronics. So a lot of those records sounded very similar to me. The house records didn't sound so different from the kind of electro records and the Mantronics records. They, they were made with the same machines and they, they had similar sounds. Was it love at first sight with house or did it have to grow on you for a while? But what was your general response and receptivity to it? Well, I really liked electronic music from the late 70s onwards. I think my first sort of love in electronic music was probably the human league um and and also another uh, sort of a studio band called the normal uh, which was the sort of beginning of mute records really the first release on mute was that was the normal which was daniel miller's band um so i'd i'd had an interest in electronic music but house music as a club form uh, I have to say, it didn't really do that much for me. Um, I was, I went, I used to go to a, a club called The Fridge in Brixton because one of my friends was the warm up DJ. This would have been summer of '87, and I'd moved back to London. And uh, Mark Moore from Express Two came and played as the guest that night, and he and he played house music all night, and I was like, what the. Because at that time, if you went to a club, you heard a bit of James Brown, you heard some hip hop, you heard some funk, you heard some soul. You might even hear a bit of rockabilly and, a, you know, a kind of a, a pop record maybe. It was all mixed up. And then this guy came and played nothing but house music for two hours. And I thought, God, this is a right old racket. Um and I couldn't get down with it at all. So I, I kind of <laughs> retreated to my sort of rare groove nights that I was going to. So I was going out clubbing a lot, but but just not to house music clubs. Um, I, so the summer of 1988 completely passed me by. I was I was 
going to clubs, but not the clubs where people were dancing to house music and taking ecstasy. So in this late 80s period, as as house and techno are becoming popular in the, in the UK, were some of the American originators, were they, did you feel like they were being celebrated more in, in the UK than they were in America, looking back? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I, I wouldn't have known. The, the lines of communication were not as open then because obviously there was no internet and stuff like that. But uh, l- looking back now, it, it, it was pretty obvious that they were lionised in the UK and also in mainland Europe and, and were not uh, celebrated any in any way at uh, the same in their own country and their own cities. Um, so it's no accident really that a lot of the DJs and the producers from Detroit and Chicago and places like that actually started basing themselves in the UK and in Germany and other cities and uh, countries as well because they were getting so much work coming over and playing big raves in the UK and Germany and France and places like that, that, um, that it, there was no point in traveling back home. I mean, there's a number of them really that have never left. Marshall Jefferson has lived in the UK for a long time. So reading your book, the story of house and techno's initial popularity in, in Europe is, is really the story from what I interpreted it as is of, of a lot of black music that comes from America, that it, it struggles to find an initial audience in America, but might take off earlier in, in Europe. Why do you think that might be? Um, well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, the UK is a much smaller country than the US, um, and both geographically and from population point of view. We had a national radio station owned by the government, um, which meant that... M- music could be promoted more easily and more quickly to a whole nation than it could in the US. The US is very segmented by states and cities and stuff like that. And also the way that music is promoted in the US is very slow and, um, uh, you know, people will work a record for months and months on end, whereas in the UK a record will come and go very quickly. Um, so I, I just think the wheels of the industry move more quickly in the UK and their ability to do that is obviously aided by the fact that we have national radio stations that can disseminate music to the whole of the country in quite a short space of time. I think that's a big factor. And most of the other countries in Europe also have national uh, government-owned radio stations as well in a way that the U.S. doesn't. I think you also you've just got to remember the U.S. is a bloody huge place. It's 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 like saying it's like the whole of Europe in one country, basically. What eventually drew you to America? What made you go to New York and and leave the U.K.? Well, I started getting into dance music in the early 1980s um, and. A lot of the music that um, drew me uh, in was actually protest music. Um, a lot of the things that really struck me in a big way in the it, when I first started discovering sort of underground African American music, it, it was records like um, Brother D with the Collective Effort, uh, How We're Going to Make the Black Nation Rise. I mean, the one that really, really hit me was. Um, a track on on Gil Scott Heron's album, Moving Targets, called B-Movie, which was about Ronald Reagan. 
and it's a really long track, like about 12 minutes long, and he's just kind of rapping on it, really. I love that song. I, I play an edit of it all the time. Sounds like it was, it's talking about like right now. Well, I mean, that's, it's funny because I started playing, since Trump came in power, it just seems like there are just so many parallels with Ronald Reagan, although amazingly Trump is making Ronald Reagan look competent. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so songs like that really, really drew me in. So I've become more and more obsessed with um, music from the States, but especially music made by African-Americans. I mean, I don't want to say that I didn't like music by white people at all because I, I loved lots of white bands as well. I mean, I was really into early R.E.M. and um, I loved the Pixies and bands like that as well. So I was I like rock music as well. But I was getting more and more deeply into African-American music. And it just seemed to me to be where the cutting edge of music was. They, they were pushing, always seemed to be pushing music forward. Um, whereas white bands seem to be creating, you know, creating a heritage industry out of things that black people had left long ago you know if you think about rock and roll people see it as a, a white person's music now but actually really it was people like ike turner that was making rock and roll in the 1950s originally long time before any white guys got into it um so it just seemed to me to be right on the cutting edge of where music was so that's what kind of drew me to it and i was working for uh mix mag's parent company dmc uh, in the early 1990s, I was editing their um, trade magazine. They, they used to do a weekly magazine aimed at DJs and people in the dance music industry called Mix Mag Update. It's like a little black and white kind of tip sheet, sort of about 16 pages or 24 pages, something like that. And the guy who ran their office in New York wanted to come back to the UK and they offered me a job uh, saying, do you want to go and run DMC out in New York? So I said, yeah. So that's how I ended up going out to New York. I went to work for, for DMC um, in uh, Manhattan. Was it in Manhattan that you got the idea to, to start writing regularly about dance music? Was that where that happened? I, I, I'd been writing about dance music since uh, either 1989 or 1990. So I started earlier. Uh, I moved to New York in like early early-ish 94, sort of Easter time 94. Uh, and I'd been writing about dance music for three and a half, maybe four years by then. So I'd already been writing about dance music, but I was getting more deeply into it. And um, New York is when I really started understanding fully the kind of how deep the roots of dance music were because we would just – the kind of oral – tradition in New York was so strong you would talk to anyone that had been around for a while and they and they would tell you just incredible stories about going to the loft or going to the paradise garage or going to the fun house or whatever club it was that they used to go to and they'd remember the records that were played and they knew that which DJ had broken which record and I was amazed by it I was just totally amazed by their memories and and I, I met Frank, my, my writing partner in New York as well. He, he was already living in New York and he was writing for ID and Time Out and The Face. And he was also writing for Mixmag, which is how I met him. Uh, and, and he and I started sort of talking about writing a book about 
initially the idea was to write a book about New York music, New York dance music. That was the first idea we had before we kind of realised that actually the story of the DJ was a much more compelling one. Um, but it was in New York that the seeds were sown for that. So we came, we both came back the end of 96, back to the UK, back to London. And we didn't sign the deal for last night, uh, a DJ saved my life until the summer of 1998. So it, it took us a while to go from first talking about it in 94 to actually doing it in 1998. It took us about four years. When did you start doing the initial research and the original interviews that made up some of the content of the book? Uh, 98. So we signed the deal in, in the summer of 98 and uh, we had a very intense period of about two months in the UK interviewing everybody that we could find in the UK. And then we went over to the US and we crashed on people's friends' floors uh, in New York in January 99, and we spent two or three weeks in New York. And we tracked down everyone we could find, uh, hip-hop DJs, old hip you know, Cool Herc, Francis Grasso, Steve DeQuisto, Charlie Grappone. I mean, we just, we were, we were doing three or four interviews a day, each of us. So we, we'd split up in the morning. I'd go search for different old disco DJs. He'd go search for old hip hop DJs. And then we'd meet for dinner and try and interview someone every dinner time as well. Uh, Grand Wizard Theodore, we did one night. Uh, we did David Mancuso from The Loft another night. Um, so we were, we had a very strong kind of work ethic. We really wanted to, you know, motor on and get things done. And I think the first edition of the book, we, we'd done about maybe 120 interviews by the time we the book came out, so, some of which were interviews that we had actually conducted before, but people like Derek Carter, Frank had interviewed Derek Carter for a piece of Mix Mag. And so there, there were a few that we were able to redeploy for the book. Frankie Knuckles was another one. Um, but yeah, and then we, and then we had basically just wrote it. Uh, we spent six months writing it at the early part of 1999, delivered it beginning of June, 99. So last night, a DJ saved my life. Your first book was one of the one of my favorite books I've I've read. But for those who are not familiar with it, can you maybe just quickly summarize what the subject matter was about? Well, it's it's the history of the DJ. We we wanted to uh, shine a light on the roots of dance music, really, and the roots of DJing, and and. I, I remember you saying to me that your first experience of dance music was Paul Oakenfold, and that, that's kind of a good example of, of why we wanted to go deeper because Paul Oakenfold was one of the famous DJs, but we wanted to find out who the first people were. So that was really important to us to kind of try and go back and as far as we could and see who was the first person to mix a record, who was the first person to do spin backs who was the first person to ever do a reggae record and and play it um all of these different things who invented the 12 inch single uh, who invented the remix that kind of thing so we were really trying to dig down deeply into the roots of dance music and djing 
and and sort of say, you know, I know that you worship this guy, but what about these people that have been forgotten? That's kind of really what our aim was for the book, was to to tell people that this is not new. Dance music is not new. House music was new, but house music was just another version of disco. Um, so dance music had been around forever. And uh, we, we wanted to show that to people, that the culture of dance music had been around for decades. What year did the book come out? What was the reception like? It came out in the UK in uh, October 1999, and it came out in October 2000 in the US. Uh, the response was unbelievable. I mean, um, we were blown away by it. Um, it, it was just... Uh, we knew that we'd written a good book, but we didn't. Uh, it just kind of was a bit of a zeitgeist book. It seemed to kind of strike a chord with a lot of people. So it, it just got an incredible reception uh, everywhere. Um, we hardly, I, I look back at the reviews a while ago um, and there's only about one or two sort of sniffy reviews. The rest are just kind of really gushing reviews about it. So, yeah, we were we were really blown away by the reception. We honestly never expected it to be quite that um, successful. Well, I, I wish I had read it sooner. I I started getting into dance music right around the time the book was released in the year 2000. And uh, yeah, I was 15 years old. I had just been to my, my first ever rave with, with Paul Oakenfold as the headline DJ. And yeah, I, I assume that that's like where it all started was these, these kind of straight white European DJs. Cause that's who I saw on a lot of the CDs that I bought. And yeah, it, it wasn't really until I, I read your book last night, DJ saved my life that I, I fully understood dance music had completely different origins than that. Why was it such a hard thing to understand where it came from, from in your opinion? Um, you know, I think white Europeans and especially white British have long had, um, a real obsession with African-American music and they've proved themselves very adept at repackaging it for a, a white American audience. I mean, that, that kind of churn has been going on for decades. You, you know, the Rolling Stones were really just recycling uh, electric blues that have been largely ignored in the States and packaging it for, for a white audience in the U S and I, and I think really Paul Oakenfold being a really successful white male DJ is is exactly the same story as the Rolling Stones when nobody in the States had ever heard of Muddy Waters. So I, I don't think there's very much difference. And those kind of stories have been repeated numerous times. You know, what, British bands have just been very, very good. British artists have been very good at packaging, loving um, African-American music and doing their version of it and then selling it to to other countries it's it's not a deliberate or malicious or um yeah i don't think it's done with malice at all it's done with love um and respect and appreciation but but the fact is that in doing that they've often allowed people to believe that they're the originator of something when in fact they weren't but but I don't think that anyone like Paul Oakenfold would honestly ever say I invented this. That we all knew where it came from because we all loved Marshall Jefferson and we all love um, Derek May and all of these guys. You know that we hero worship them. So I don't think it was done 
with bad intentions. Got it. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. And I, I think in some ways it's it's more of a sign of biases that some Americans might have that they're more receptive to a whitewashed, in some ways, version of Black culture than they are to, to hearing the, the raw, unfiltered version from oppressed minorities. I, I think that's there's some there's some response but, but, on, the, on the listeners' part there too. But there's also something else, which is that um, DJs love imports, um, and so you know when, when I lived in New York, everyone was really obsessing about imports from the UK and Holland and Italy and places like that. In a way that. Um, you know, when I was in the UK, everyone obsessed over US imports. That's what we all wanted. We wanted imports from New York. We wanted imports from Detroit, imports from Chicago. That's what we were really interested in. Uh, but all of these black DJs in New York, they were like fetishizing Dutch record labels and British record labels. <laughs> I think there is a tendency for, for DJs just to kind of love and import because it's harder to find and it's more unique. And as a DJ, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for perhaps music that nobody else has got. And, and an import is a route into that. Got it. Got it. So, so fast forward 20 years since the year 2000 and dance music, both the mainstream variety and the more underground, maybe it's true, true to its origins, at least from a sound standpoint variety is, is more popular in, in the US than it's been in a long time. That that said, you look at the people who are, who are attending events and large, large festivals of the quote underground dance music. And even if they're they're booking black artists, a lot of the, t- the, the crowds are are largely white. And I, I read a recent interview from Kevin Saunderson, one of the Belleville three who you credit for inventing techno. And he, from his perspective, he believes that black dance music artists aren't being developed because just people think of it more of a, of a white thing and that it's, it's a white people's industry and music. Um, That's what he, he said recently. He said that, that this year. Uh, how do you think we got there? Um, oh God, it's a really hard question to answer because, um, because if you look at hip hop, um, which is similar origins to disco, for example, uh, or house. Um, And that's really an industry that's dominated by black artists, black managers, um, black producers. Uh, Why that hasn't happened for dance music, I, I really, it's really hard to explain. I think part of it is that it's not a very lucrative industry to be in in the US because it's very underground. You're not, you know, there are no Kanye Wests uh, in dance music in the US. Well, no. I, 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 to push you there, I mean, like the this is not my cup of tea, but the the Vegas DJ circuit, at least pre-COVID, was was quite lucrative, and it's it's almost all white white DJs there. Um, what what like where is that disconnect? Like, I I I, I get the sense that. People who go to EDM shows just have have no idea that like this is actually like a, a black thing, um, and it's they they would be so understandably not understand that because there's just not that many huge black EDM artists. That's very true, but then. I mean, personally, I don't really regard what's going on in clubs in Las Vegas or most of EDM to be anything to do with with dance music continuum, really. 
it, it seems like some sort of freakish outlier to me that has so little to do with I suppose because its black origins are so distant, it just does not appeal to me in any way. But however, I do think it's an important musical movement for the US because I think it's a great entry point for a lot of teenage kids who will, as they get older, start looking for other aspects of dance music that they haven't been exposed to. So I do think it's important in the US in that it might introduce a new audience to dance music. I mean, you know, I honestly can't answer why there aren't more black people involved in it. In the UK, it's and you come to London and uh, dance music generally is a multiracial thing depending on the style of music, although I would say house music these days is dominated by a, a generally a white audience. Uh, but there are plenty of clubs in London playing different strands of dance music that's that's largely a black crowd. Um, so so it has developed in a different way in, in the UK and possibly in other areas of, of Europe as well. Uh, to the US and I can't really explain that very readily Uh, um, the way that black music is developed in the UK is completely different to the way that uh, is developed in the US you know the kind of continuum of black music UK black music went from acid house to drum and bass to UK garage to dubstep and now to like grime and trap and things like that. And all of these have been driven at least partially by the black community in inner cities. So the, looking back on, on your book um, that, that came out 20 years ago, uh, thereabouts, it really did play a key role for me in understanding that dance music had very different roots than I understood that they were from uh, oppressed American communities who are largely non-white but almost all of the artists mentioned in, in that book were male. Um, it's now been about 20 years since that book was, was released. And it seems like now more than ever, there's just a ton of female identifying DVJs who are, who are more prominent than ever and, and really doing groundbreaking work. How do you explain that shift that we've maybe seen in the last 20 years? Okay, I, I, this is one of the fr- – we really want to write an updated version of our book, and one of the reasons I'd like to do that is just because of that change, to, to acknowledge that change, because we really struggled to find uh, historic women uh, to include in the book. We, we were really aware of the fact that it was a very male-dominated history book. But then I guess – a lot of history books, uh, because of the nature and the position of women in the past, are a bit like that. But but I think one of the reasons it's changed is that a lot of the women that have risen up have come from territories and countries where dance music was much younger and less stratified than it was in the US and the UK. Uh, for example, house music in the UK and London is still really dominated by men. Um, but if you look in other areas of, of dance music, uh, women are taking a much more prominent role because there's no blockage at the top. And I think that's been a, an important factor. People like Nina Kravis come along from Siberia, from a you know, and from a country where dance music realistically was quite young, I think it was easier for them to break through in those circumstances than a female DJ 
in an established genre of music like house music in in London or England or the UK or the US. I think that's a factor. Uh, and then once you have one or two of those women emerging, suddenly there are role models for younger women. And I think that's a, a very important thing that's been lacking for years and years and years is we've had some female DJs, but they've always been... They've never risen to a position of prominence particularly uh, enough to kind of encourage a new generation of women to come through. And I think that's changed now. I'm blown away by how many women are seeing it as a, as a potential career. It's, it's amazing and exciting. So there's a lot of conversation in this day and age around cultural appropriation and what's the respectful way to celebrate art of another from another culture what do you think that the line of fairness is for djs is there is there any sort of line that you you see is like acceptable um and a line that you think is not it's this is a very hard question to answer in dance music because it's always been uh a lot a lot of um a lot of theft, for, for want of a better verb to describe it. But there's been a lot of toing and froing between different communities and different artists and different DJs and different remixes, taking this bit and using that bit. And so I think leveling the accusation of cultural appropriation in dance music is a very difficult thing indeed because uh, it's always been a bit of a mongrel art form and uh, I think that's kind of one of the things that is exciting about it that black people are inspired by white people white people are inspired by black people I, I think where we have a problem is about structural racism at the top of dance music more than cultural appropriation I think I think that's an issue that we need to address what are some of the issues of structural racism at the top of dance music that you you see? Um, well, most of the people that write about it are white and middle class and usually male. Um, there aren't many writers of colour in, in the UK. There's very few. I mean, I know there are, there are some in, in the US that I know about. Um, I think the, the gatekeepers of dance music are, are too often white, male, middle class. Um, and they don't do it intentionally, but unintentionally they're excluding certain people from dance music. I think it was, I mean, for example, I think it was like that a little bit with, with the gay community. I, when I worked at um, DMC in the early nineties, I was the first person to bring gay writers onto the magazine because because I was going out to gay clubs. And so I was acutely aware of the fact they weren't documenting uh, that music and that scene. So I kind of thought, well, we need to redress that. And and I think what it needs is is black writers on magazines saying, actually, this club I go to every week, no one's writing about it. And that's what changes things is people going in there and writing about it. Uh, but when you have so many white middle-class male writers, it, it, they don't see that as being an issue because they're not going to those clubs. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So looking back at these several decades of, of dance music that you've lived through and written about, are there any artists that, that stand out for their activism work to you? 
Hmm. Well, God, that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, obviously, the 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 big one for me is Gil Scott Heron. He was a huge uh, influence on me, and the nine when I first discovered him in the beginning of the nineteen eighties. Obviously, he'd been around for ten years already, but I only I only discovered him in about nineteen eighty eighty one. He he was a he had a big impact on me um and i've always been slightly disappointed in hip hop that um there's never really been somebody in the same way i mean there are people that have written about social issues have rapped about social issues but not in the same consistent way that gil scott heron did um so he he was a big important figure for me in terms of people that i personally know the one that i always have conversations with about this is is fabio the drum and bass dj uh <laughs> who's one half of fabio and groove rider because yep. he he's not a party political person but he always has a really strong sense of politics in when he talks uh he's innately naturally a political being and i remember when i first interviewed him about acid house and everything he he was really adamant that it was an anti-Thatcher movement. It was like a reaction to Thatcherism, which is how I saw it as well. Like, but but lo- lots of other people did not share my view. Um, lots of other people saw it as quite an entrepreneurial Thatcherite movement. In so- and then in some ways it was. But um, for me, I-, I felt it was a reaction to Thatcherism. It was, it was people searching for community in a country that had been split apart by politics and and uh, adverse economic policies. Do you do you uh, view the act of, of raving as a as a political act still to this day? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think I think the na- there's something about nightlife that belongs to a slightly outlaw sector of society. Anyway, just the fact that things are happening at night when everybody else is in bed. There is something transgressive about just the act of going out when everyone else is going to bed that um, I have to say that I do find quite appealing. Um, and and if you look at the complete lack of subsidy that dance music has received, I'm sure it's the same in the US, but in the UK, for example, um, uh, opera receives half a million pounds in subsidies every year and dance music receives nothing. Um, so it, it is seen as a kind of outsider culture, even though it's had a huge impact on on gen- helping to gentrify areas that were previously seen as kind of no-go areas. For example, um, Shoreditch in London has been gentrified off the back of nightclubs and bars and stuff like that. You know, the nighttime economy has been a, a great driver of gentrification. And yet as soon as... Uh, the hoteliers move in there. They start complaining about the noise that these nightclubs make and the nightclubs get closed down and they have to move somewhere else. So, yes, I do. I, I do see them as a, tra- as a transgressive industry and I quite like that. Do you see any paths for the electronic music scene to have more effective activism work? Well, I, I, I suppose my one wish for dance music is that people would be more politically engaged um but i think that's probably a general feeling um 
as an as an old person that's been involved in political activism for a long time uh, I, I, and when i've watched how the country has gone over the past 20 or so years where it seems like people are almost embarrassed to admit that they're in in a trade union and all of that stuff is seen as like something from the 1960s or or 1970s that depresses me but then you know I've got a a 15 year old daughter um, and she's been tremendously um, I mean, we she's grown up in a political household. We talk about these kind of things all the time, but she's become very politically aware and very, very politically politically active. Uh, she's been going on Black Lives Matter demonstrations. She's like really into uh, trans rights and stuff like that. So it does fill me with hope that there's a new generation ready to kind of take on and try and right the ills and the wrongs of society. And, and yeah, so I, I do feel a certain amount of positivity because of her activism. Yeah, that's what keeps me positive as well, looking at the generation on the horizon, how, how much more progressive they are than the previous generations. Yeah, and- she, I mean, she just knows so much more about what's going on now. And, and it's funny, tonight, just before this interview, actually, she was sat um, eating an ice cream, uh, sat at the table watching an interview about Black Lives Matter. And, I mean, you know, she's just a 15-year-old kid. When I was 15, I wasn't interested in any of that shit. So <laughs> that kind of does fill me with hope that, that actually the things that are going on at the moment are politicizing teenagers like that. I think is amazing and inspiring. Yeah, I, I also find a lot of solace and encouragement in that. And, yeah, given that, Given that at its heart, dance music is a youth movement, though, it just seems like there's such a huge opportunity to to capitalize on that energy, especially when you look at, at least in the U.S., the, the rates of voting amongst millennials and Gen Z is, is pretty trying. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of work to do there. Do you have any ideas around how promoters or artists could, could better engage their audiences towards activist ends? Well, I think the disconnect really is the fact that most artists and most promoters don't give a shit about it. Um, I think that's the problem, really. Um, Yeah, even though when I speak to people involved in dance music, they tend to be generally, I would say, left of centre as a a whole. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions, but um, I've always seen most of my peers as being fairly liberal. Um, but being fairly liberal and being politically motivated, there's a, there's a sort of a there's a bit of a quantum leap, isn't there, to go from voting in an election to actually doing something more. Um, having said that, both Brexit and Black Lives Matter really kind of galvanised large parts of the population uh, in in this country, and I know that, for example, the Labour Party groom hugely over a lot of the political activism that's gone on over the last few years. But wh- how how that translates in, dance, in a dance music context, I don't really know. I mean, I you know, I think, and probably you do too, that all actions are political. Um, everything you do has a political 
a dimension, a political consequence. Um, but unfortunately, not everybody sees life like that. People just want to get on with their life and not be bothered by government. Well, as I think back on this conversation about your book, Bill, I, I brought back to 10 years ago when I first read it, and it really did put me on a path to making music a, a larger part of my life and why I promote events in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, and why I, I really see like the value and, and social significance of, of dance music like, as I do today. And uh, I recently made a transition in my career to politics, and I, I truly don't think that I would be working in politics were it not for my involvement in, in dance music culture and, and hosting events. You just you get an insight into so many more different lives that are other than your own, and you get able to get outside your own privilege so much easier in a in a dance floor environment and really understand society. I think a lot, a lot better. And uh, th- that is to say, I don't I don't know that I would be working in politics were not for your book and your work that you've taken to document the history of dance music. So I really appreciate you doing that. And for the for anybody who hasn't uh, is not familiar with, with Bill's books, um, he has a number of great titles. The book we've been talking about mostly is Last Night DJ Saved My Life, which is the history of dance music. You can get it anywhere the books are sold, pretty much. Uh, another great title I always recommend to those who are just starting DJing is How to DJ Write, another book by Bill and his writing partner, Frank. It has some great timeless lessons around how to DJ and what's really important. It's really sort of a, a values check in a lot of ways to, to DJing um, with some, again, some timeless tips and guidance. So if you're interested in history of dance music or you want to DJ, please do check out Bill's books. And of course, Bill's on a number of different channels. Uh, he has a, an amazing podcast of his own c- called the DJ History Podcast. It's on Patreon, SoundCloud, wherever you can get podcasts. It's on I've listened to frequently because uh, there's great music. And also you get a little bit of education in each episode as well. Um, Bill, anything to, to add about where people can find you or anything you got going on in the moment? <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'm on uh, Mixcloud is probably where I'm most active in terms of mu- just purely music. That's mixcloud.com forward slash Bill Brewster. Um, beyond that, I mean, you know, just Google my name. I'm fairly, fairly easy to find. Um, uh, yeah, I'm always uh, happy to greet new followers and people that are interested in music and especially the history of music. Well, Bill, thank you again. I really appreciate your time being on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you and reconnect with you. And yeah, I wish you the best in these crazy times. Thanks a lot. Take care, Peter. Bye-bye. All right, bye. So to give some context on the origins of house music, I'm going to play a few tracks from the late 80s, early 90s, from black artists who defined what house is today. If you're into house music and this is your thing, you probably know these tracks. A lot of them are classics. But a lot of people probably don't know what they are. So I'm going to talk a little about them, play some songs. This first one we got coming in is Larry Hurd, who under the alias Mr. Fingers. Track is Can You Feel It on Tracks Records.
Hey, that last track was Vincent Floyd, Your Eyes. This next track is an artist called Dream to Science with a track called Liquid.
track was Tracking Down the House, The African Dance by Tony V from Sample Records. This next track is under the name Willie Ninja, although it has production from Kenny Dope Gonzalez and uh, Little Louis Vega of Masters at Work. Track title is Hot.
track was You're In My System from Jerome Seidenham and Carrie Chandler. This next track coming in is uh, under the name Reese Project. It's a project from Kevin Saunderson, who is one of the founders of Techno, although this is a more house pop kind of a track. And the title of this one is Direction.
That last track was from one of the godfathers of house music, Frankie Knuckles, remixed by David Morales, who was a big DJ in New York in the 1990s. The track was Rain Falls. This next track coming in is a deep, heady one from Ability 2, The Pressure Dub, track from 1990. It's fun. It's pretty hard. It's pretty deep.
All right, that's the show, everybody. Thanks for checking it out. There's going to be a lot more of these. And as always, there will be information on the interviewee, in this case, Phil Brewster, as well as music played on my website, which you can check out at Peter Marks, Peter, M-A-R-K-S dot U-S. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a review. It helps other people find the podcast and will lead to more great guests on this program. Thanks again for being here. I'll see you next time.